Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. when you've been an evangelical missionary in the Amazon and then you realize you don't believe in God or Christianity anymore. Wendy Marsman was raised in a strict religious family and thought her future would be in the mission fields of South America. But as her life there started to unravel, she started to see how her religion mistreated women and how hypocrisy was part of daily life. She left her faith and experienced a lot of loss because of that. She now produces the Women Beyond Belief podcast, helping other women and men adjust when they realize they just can't continue with what Christianity says about women, morals, and life. Just FYI, there's a section here where Wendy gets emotional about her experience, and she's fine that you're hearing it. She said, I just don't want to pretend anymore. I've listened to a lot of episodes on women beyond belief, and uh, it's interesting what a, a variety you have of mostly women, but some men too. And mm-hmm. um, so you mentioned that the Women Beyond Belief podcast is done with some contribution to and with the full uh, support of Karen Garst, who wrote a book, Women Beyond Belief. And she said, uh, this is a quote, with scripture often cited as justification for the marginalization of women, it's time to acknowledge that one of the final barriers to full equality for women is religion. Is that kind of a driver of what you're doing with the podcast? Yes, I think that both Karen and I, even though we've come from a bit of different background, definitely have that same vision in that religion is harmful to women and and there's not going to ever be true, you know, feminist equality or women being treated equal if we still have religion around in our society. Her background was not as fundamental as mine. Mm -hmm. She was more, um, she was from a denomination, I think it was Lutheran, that um, wasn't quite as strict as the denominations that I was part of. So we do come from a bit of a different perspective, but I think we both come to the same end conclusion. So let's talk a little about your background. Um, when you first, you know, were a young child, you were growing up in rural Canada on a homestead, and you went to a really restrictive Christian school, and then you were homeschooled. And just to give people a sense of, of what this was like, I mean, because I had a really strict Catholic upbringing, but my mother wore pants. I mean, your mother didn't even wear pants, right? No. So No, she didn't wear pants. She didn't wear a bathing suit. And I don't think I remember wearing pants. I think I bought my first pair of pants when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And the school, the first school we went to for those first seven years, we had a school uniform where the girls were, wore dresses and the boys wore pants yeah. and ties. So... I was just 
I guess I was just used to that and seeing my mom always in a dress. I, I didn't think it was unusual, you know, in, in, I mean, other families of course had mothers that wore pants. Um, but I, it, because it was what, you know, I was used to, then it didn't seem, oh, this is really weird and I should rebel. Mm. So it, I ended up doing it myself. I remember there was, I think a year or two year period, um, where I didn't wear any pants either. I would sort of go on swings of being more fundamental myself and thinking I was doing God's work, thinking I was being a better Christian, being more modest, all of those things. Yes, because <laughs> pants are the way to perdition. Yep. <laughs> and yet you've, you had, so you had this really evangelical family, and yet your father considered himself a pagan, right? But he wanted you to go to church, but he sounds like he was really messed up anyway. Yeah, he was messed up. I don't know if he was pagan. All I know is that he would say, I worship nature and my church is the forest and I don't believe in I don't believe in God. I believe we came from monkeys and so he sort of combined it all. But he loved having a Christian wife and he insisted that we go to a Christian school, even though he was a high school public high school teacher, he did not want us to go to the public school. Hmm. So so I think he just, he wanted structure, he wanted control, and we were, you know, completely controlled, my brother and I, in everything we did and everything we said, and very restricted about around everything. And so he probably felt that that was one way he could be a parent. I think he should have never been a parent, and I heard him once say that he, uh, the one argument that I remember them having while I was still under their roof, after I left, they argued a lot more, but when I was part of the home, they were never... They never would show outward dis disapproval of each other because wow. that was non-Christian. So I never heard them raise their voice or my them argue at all, except for one time when I was 16. And I was sure they would get a divorce because they had never argued before then. And I remember hearing my mom say, you know, you never wanted kids and he didn't deny it. So he should have never had kids. I mean, my mom shouldn't have either because of how they treated us since then. Mm. But, um, but that's a terrible yeah, just, thing to, he, to hear when you're a kid to overhear that your parents yeah. never really wanted you. Well, it was obvious, but I didn't want to admit it. I always put the blame on myself. The, the reason I didn't have a good relationship with my dad was because it was my fault, because that's what Bill Gothard, who my dad very much looked up to, and he, you know, he was on board. He took us, we drove eight hours to go and see Bill Gothard in person at this huge, I think it was like a stadium or something like that. And uh, no, I'm not familiar with him. Who he's some evangelist? No, he's um, he's very fundamentalist, single man, older man who started this institute in basic life principles or something like that. So he created a curriculum. He would go around speaking. So it wasn't evangelism. He would be speaking to people who are already Christians mm -hmm. and just instructing them more in how to live a godly life, how to be godly parents, even though he's, he was never married himself <laughs> and never had kids himself. And that never was a red flag until after I got married myself and, you know, and I didn't follow his teachings at all after that. Cause I thought, what he he's never been married, never had kids. It's why are we listening to him? Well, it's like so, it's like Catholics who go to their parish priest with their marital problems. 
It's like, hello, yeah, or, you know, or the sense. Vatican saying you can't use birth control. It's like, hello, when was the mm-hmm. last time you were pregnant? Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, how old were you when you got married? Uh, I was engaged when I was 19 wow. and married at, I don't know, 20, 20 years, four months or something. Yeah, so 20. And so... Did you think, oh, yes, we're definitely going to have kids and we're going to live Christian lives? Your husband was was involved with the same kind of religious focus that you were, right? Yeah, he was actually a missionary kid from Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. So his parents had been missionaries. He had grown up uh, for about 10 out of his first 20 years. He had been in Papua New Guinea some of that time living in the village with his parents who were started off as Bible translators there. And the rest of the time he was on the mission base that had um, several different missions associated with it and children's homes so that the missionaries who were going into the villages, they would leave their kids in these children's homes for the time that they were in the village so that the kids didn't have to go back and forth and they could have some stability. Mm-hmm. Um, that's with quotes because there wasn't much stability there either um, <laughs> because Papua New Guinea has a lot of high crime rate. Oh, really? It's really poor, really poor country. There's 800 different languages. It's the country with the most amount of different languages. And that's one of the reasons why there's so many missions there is because they feel that, you know, the kingdom of God can't begin until every language has at least some of the scriptures in their own language. That's what our, our mission was. I mean, that mission, and I, I later joined that mission too. So they, so he grew up in a very fundamentalist background also. Um, and, but just this different strain of it because it was missions related. Um, and so, yeah, when we got together, we were, I mean, the first time I met him, he said, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, I see myself married with kids on the mission field. And sure enough, I met that goal in five years. We were on the mission field with kids. So that was, <laughs> I didn't even question that I wouldn't have kids. I remember in high school, I would, you know, babysit for extra money and such, but I didn't have any, I was my, I was youngest in the family. And when I was young, I didn't have anyone around that was younger than me because we lived in this such remote area. So I wasn't used to having having kids around and babies around. But I don't remember who I told, but I remember saying to somebody, I think I'd rather adopt than have my own because I see there's so many kids that need to have a good home. Mm -hmm. But once I met this man and, you know, you fall in love and it's just, oh, we've got a creative a baby now it's just it's a very weird thing that comes over you and I'm not the only one that that happens to <laughs> right in fact I'm doing so. a, a series on population uh and we're talking about some of those assumptions um yeah. and and people who you know what happens when people buck those assumptions but were you excited you saw yourself as being a missionary and so you married this guy who had been a missionary as a kid and then you spent eight and a half years in the Amazon and mm-hmm. and you were so you were working with this organization to translate the Bible into indigenous languages. Is that what you were doing? Yes, the, the mission we were with, which was Wycliffe Bible Translators, um, we joined that mission basically because my husband's fam- you know parents had already been with the mission and we sort of had a, a door 
a doorway into it, but it, it was a bit of a challenge to join anyways. And um, we went over first as short-term assistants because they wouldn't let you go as career members until you had taken further training. And we just wanted to get onto mission field. So we wanted to test it out. And a lot of people they'll take you, they'll send them to jungle camp, which is uh, usually in uh, Southern Brazil. And then there's a few places in Mexico that really put you into a very remote area. You live with the families, you learn the language, um, you learn to, you know, build a, you know, build a hut in the forest and survive on just about nothing. It's, you know, wilderness training mm -hmm. in some ways because they, they want to weed out people who who can't hack the rustic lifestyle of living overseas. And we were able to get around not going to jungle camp. In hindsight, I wish we had because I think it would have been so traumatic that our marriage wouldn't have been able to survive it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because, I mean, we, we did go through an awful lot of stresses in our marriage, and most other marriages might not have lasted as long um, with so much traveling and, and, yeah, living in a remote area. But, but um, so we went to Brazil in 1994, and um, we had a nine-month-old uh, son at that point in time when we first went. And it was... Um, it wasn't as bad for me, I think, because I had grown up in a remote area in Canada and, you know, we grew all of our own food and we um, learned to, you know, make every single thing from scratch pretty much. I I was a seamstress by trade at that point. I mean, that's the only official training besides Cook's training that I had. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I could sew for the other missionaries and sew for our family and and cook everything from scratch because at that point in time where we went in Brazil, it was still very, very rugged. And we were in an area that they they um, affectionately called the Wild West of Brazil because it was where all of the people from the south, where the big cities were, would send all of their con artists and the rebels. They would escape up there. So the town we were near was, yeah, it was very rustic when we first arrived. Um and it was it was quite a challenge in some ways. In some ways, it was this great adventure, and God's you know going to provide our all of our needs. And we weren't specifically translators; we were helping the translators. Right. So we were on the mission base and um, helping them with whatever they needed. My husband would help with you know repairing their car and repairing their houses and. Um, a few times he would go out into the village. He would drive. There was uh, a few translation villages nearby that were within days, a day's drive. Other ones, they had to take the uh, Cessna 206 plane mm -hmm. in. And sometimes he'd go in and help build a little medical building or fix the house that the translators lived in. So he got a lot, lot more interaction with the actual Indians than I ever did. Yeah. I, I only went one time into the village as sort of like a, a tour trip when my parents came to visit one time. What were you told about the the indigenous people there? I mean, you know, we, we look at cultures from our own perspective. And so I assume it was also assumed that they needed Jesus and that you were going to help them. But what that just that one time that you were in the village, was there anything in particular that impressed you? Um, well, we, you know, being part of the evangelical 
denomination, we believed that everyone needed to pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into their heart before they could go to heaven. And that in order to build the church, they needed to have the scripture in their own language. And so that was the main reason for our mission was to translate the Bible into those languages. And sometimes it would take 30 years just to translate the New Testament for some of these translators. It was like such a dedication for their life. And we really believed that that there was there was the opportunity for these people to have a better life if they learned how to read and write also, because the majority of the villages were in the remote areas in the Amazon mm-hmm. that you know had only been recently discovered. I mean, our mission base was 30 years old, and so a lot of those people had been, uh, those villages had been discovered, you know, not much earlier than 30 years before that, which is pretty amazing in our in our society mm. and how long we've been around on this earth that, you know, they're still finding people with new language groups. And so it, I don't know, I, I came up, we always had this assumption that we had the right way of learning, I mean, the right way to teach people about God. There were other mission groups that would come in and they'd translate the Bible in a different way. They would do a whole Bible translation, which did it based on the chrono- chronologically and story-based, whereas the mission that we were part of, all of the translators had to have either a master's or a doctorate level as a linguist, and and they had to know Greek and Hebrew and all of that so that they would translate it word for word or phrase for phrase. So that's one reason it took so long. But, I but would... that's just what we believed. <laughs> but there are languages that you can't get there from here, you know? I mean, when you figure there are people who have lived in a particular culture for eons and they have developed their languages, their languages reflect what their experience is. And so were there were there certain ideas about, say, Christianity that they they couldn't grasp or that was a source of frustration for these translators? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Two things that um, I'm reminded of. So if I only say one, then tell me, remind me that I have one more thing to say. <laughs> I get lost in my train. So of do I. <laughs> it's definitely a local train. So the first thing I'll, I'll say is that while we were there, there was near the end of our time, we came back uh, from Brazil in 2005 and were with the mission for two more years um, as as representatives. But when just as before we came back, there was an interesting situation where um, in this village, they really felt that the only way that the language was being passed on from one generation to another generation was through song. And so a lady came down who was an ethnomusicologist, Mm -hmm. and she went into the village and she from what I understood, you know, she was able to decipher that, yes, the language and the traditions and the stories and the heritage of these people was being tra- passed on by women in the village hmm. through song. And so teaching them to read the Bible or read at all wasn't wasn't progressing very well. And they, you know, were resisting it. So they started realizing they were going to translate the Bible and then convert it. And they hired the Indians to sing the the scripture so that that's how the the indians would hear about jesus Hmm. so that was a unique situation so that's the first one the second thing was 
since coming back and in the last two years, I discovered that, that one of the missionaries that we had worked with down there, his name's Dan Everett, became an atheist because of the, the Indians. So we were always told that every language group, every tribe, every indigenous group, they all have a creation story. They all have a flood story. They all have a God story. And this is just what we believed. I didn't question it because it seemed like there was, you know, you believe the facts that are told to you from people you trust. Mm -hmm. So I believe that. And when he, when he was down in the village, when we knew them on the mission field, him and his wife were there and they had three adult children who actually ended up, two of them became some of my best friends and their kids were the same age as my kids. And, and so, you know, they were second generation missionaries. So her, so this missionary family with all these kids, um, we're all working there. They all seemed like awesome people, but all this time, from about mid eighties onwards. So the whole time that we had known him, he was an atheist and he was closeted because that was his life. That was his career. He knew he would lose his wife who was a second generation missionary kid herself. Um, if he ever came out as an atheist, but what happened was he went into the village multiple times and the Indians would say, we have no story of God. We have no, you know, we have no need for this story. Mm -hmm. And things like, you know, well, have you met Jesus? Oh, well, if you haven't met him, then how do you trust his story? You know, so they just pushed everything back on him that he was trying to tell them, you know, about Jesus. And so he, it made him question his own faith enough that he realized that that storyline isn't true, that every indigenous group has a story of creation, has a story of God. This group did not. Well, they probably I had a creation story, but you know, not with the same characters, um, right? I don't know. But for him, at least, it it made him question his faith enough and all of this thing that he'd always been told about these Indians needing the Bible, that it made him leave his faith. And after we left, we found out that he came out as an atheist. And yeah, he's got a book out. And I think they actually created a play based on the book in England. Hmm. He has quite a story. So Dan Everett is his name. Uh -huh. His wife was very influential on me. She was similar to my mom, which was, you know, basically in love with Jesus, kind of a mindset. Mm -hmm. Since then, his wife has still gone back into the village and is still trying desperately to get these people to, you know, believe Jesus. But <laughs> it seems futile. There's a lot of things that I regret about being in the mission field now that I've come you know, now that I've come out of religion, and one of them is the colonialization that I would see. Um, and it, I think in some ways, you know, it had the right motives, you know, in that they would take take gifts to the Indians because the Indians were helping them. So instead of paying them with cash for them to come and mm -hmm. help, you know, record that that singing language, they would pay them with sugar or pay them with um, matches or various things, you know, that were modern things that they would not have had in their own village. And even just coming into the village and building a house that had four walls instead of three walls and had a little bit of structure and rooms and a place that they could set up a generator. I'm, and then even coming in by four by four truck or by plane, that's bringing colonialization to the village but along those lines of, you know, the things that you regret about the colonial aspects of, of missionary life, how do you feel now about the fact that you promoted beliefs that you yourself no longer hold? 
Yeah, I just wish I could go and undo the last 40 years of my life. <laughs> which I can't. <laughs> you know, I wish I could go back to my, you know, seven-year-old self and say, you know, when that Sunday school teacher threatens you with hell, if you don't say the sinner prayer, walk out the door, <laughs> you know. What is the sinner's prayer? You've mentioned that. Is it? Oh, I love hearing that. I love hearing people who don't know that because it means you weren't in. It means you weren't indoctrinated with fundamentalism. No, but I was indoctrinated with plenty of crap. I just don't know that one. What, yeah. what is it? Can you still well, recite that, it? Well, it's not necessarily a specific wording. Uh, every you know, every denomination or church I was part of had different wording. But basically, it's. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I deserve to go to hell. Please come into my heart and, you know, cover you with the blood, cover me with the blood of Jesus and forgive all my sins and I'll serve you till the day I die so that I can go to heaven. I mean, it's similar. It's basically that. <laughs> wow. So it's it's ask Jesus into your heart. So it's definitely a you know, a red letter Bible kind of a mindset where Jesus the New Testament is more important than the Old Testament, even though they won't actually say that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's following Jesus and Jesus's words um, and ignoring a lot of the Old Testament and just really believing that Jesus is a personal God and he literally can live in your heart through the Holy Spirit. So it definitely believes in the, the Trinity where there's a separate God, a separate Holy Spirit, God, the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus. And it's it, you know, every church I would go to had their own interpretation of that. Some were um, more charismatic, where they really emphasized the Holy Spirit, you know, and the speaking in tongues mm -hmm. and raising your hands and and healing ministry. Uh, the mission we were with in Brazil, uh, we worked right alongside this youth with the mission, and they were very much into the healing and the speaking in tongues. And there was times when I really believed there had been miracles. I remember one time... This lady, uh, my kids were walking to the mission school, which was, you know, like about a quarter of a mile. Our, our mission had a circle with the jungle in the middle and jungle around the outside and then um, a circle road with all the grass cut low so that the snakes would, wouldn't be near the houses. <laughs> and the kids were walking, you know, on this dirt road around towards the school. And um, there was, we called it the aviation building, and there was a... VW van. So we had a lot of the VW vans because they were made in Brazil, I think, mm -hmm. you know, like a, they, we called it the combi van uh, from those, you know, those pictures of the 1960s and everyone had those kind of um, Hippie, hippies. Anyways, the, hippie. Well, they were brand new. Uh, you could buy them brand new in Brazil and they were pretty cheap. And um, anyway, so they, that was one of those vans was up near this aviation building, which was where the translators would store all of their equipment uh, when they were going in and out of the village. And um, it was on a bit of a hill. And for some reason, um, this lady had left her daughter in the car and it had gone out of gear <sighs> and was rolling down the hill. And this, lady, this other lady came out to stop the van and the van ran over her. And uh, my kids, you know, were along with some of the other kids that were walking to school were right there when it happened. And, you know, there's different testimonies of what they actually saw, but it looks like it, uh, the tires actually did go over her collarbone and she had no broken bones because right away we, you know, there was a group of people there and they were praying over her 
and they took her into the hospital and there was no broken bones and they you know we believed that was a miracle mm -hmm. and there was other times when there was snake bite stories where this you know they, they would bring indians in on the plane to the mission base if they had had a really bad snake bite mm -hmm. that, that happened quite regularly where indians would die from snake bites and if they could get there in time they would send a plane out bring them back to the uh, mission base and the nurse on our mission base would treat them and um you know we would be praying like crazy and if they were healed that was a miracle mm -hmm. <laughs> so believing in in that complete relationship with jesus um and the holy spirit being there and believing in miracles believe we also believed in the devil and we would pray about you know putting a hedge of protection around the house and around our kids mm -hmm. and you know that the devil wouldn't tempt us and so that was that was the fundamentalism that we were part of so was there a particular event or a particular circumstance that started to crack your belief system yeah there was um i guess the first thing that was the most traumatic thing even though i'd had a lot of various traumas in my life and didn't realize they were traumas because because it was common in that religion to have to live with traumas and not realize it um, related to hidden abuse and abuse that was covered up. So my, my husband had an affair with a lady on the mission base and it went on for a year and a half. And when it finally came out, that was the biggest betrayal I had encountered up until that point. And uh, I knew that I couldn't say anything about it because in that mission, if anything happened, like you weren't allowed to be divorced, you weren't allowed to have any sign of sin. So you either had to cover it up or you or you left. So I knew it would, it would end our our time on Brazil in Brazil if and also the lady that he had the affair with um, was the the um, pilot's wife. So it would have really impacted that other mission. And so, you know, it would have just impacted so many people if I had said anything. So it just kept, I kept it under wraps. And then it happened again after we came back from Brazil. Uh, the last year we were with, mission, uh, with the mission, um, he had another affair. And both of these affairs were types of affairs that I could not prove because they were emotional affairs and uh, you know they they kissed and made out and had intimate times together but there was no intercourse and in our in our religious structure there was always there was degrees of of cheating uh -huh. and that type of cheating if it couldn't be proved and if both of the partners said there was no intercourse then you couldn't actually say it was an affair so emotional affairs or, or the, you know, a physical affair that didn't actually involve intercourse, they were, they were questioned. And I knew that my word would be questioned. Interestingly enough, I didn't react um, as much as both of the husbands in both of those affairs where both of them completely cut off communication with my husband because of it. So they were impacted a lot. Did your husband know that you knew? Oh yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a big deal. Yeah, I, I threatened divorce the second time around. The first time around, I, I went into depression that I hadn't felt before. I couldn't really operate for about a week. Um, it really, mm -hmm. and it affected our relationship with that family, of course, 
because up until that point, we had been doing a lot of things with them. And she was the principal of the school and I was the secretary of the school. And so it affected, they they went on furlough right away after that. And so we didn't see them for a year and then they came back and then we went on furlough. So we didn't interact with them for a while. So it definitely affected our relationships. Our kids always wondered why we stopped you know, seeing or visiting them after that. Well, you had to keep a secret the whole time. Yeah, and then the second time he was actually on one of his high school reunions with his um, missionary kids school from, from Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. They had had a high school reunion. So it was someone that he had, I don't know if he had actually dated her in high school, but they had they had been, you know, they were sweethearts at that point. So, and it, and to find out that he had been emailing her for months before that, and then he kept it a secret for seven months. And the way I found out was his um the the husband of this lady emailed him and threatened him and um threatened my husband and I intercepted the email and questioned him on and he denied it of course right off the bat mm-hmm. so the the betrayal was that he had lied to me that was harder to deal with than the actual yeah affair um and so and I said okay we're getting a divorce or we have to go to counseling and he agreed to counseling and the only counseling that you were allowed in that religion was through the pastor we weren't allowed to see normal counselors because God's got you know God has to solve all your problems and if not God then the pastor wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah so mental health issues are completely not dealt with at all wow that is rough so that was the second crack in my oh and so when I found this out, I told my mom, my mother-in-law, uh, I, I said to my husband, okay, we have to go and tell your parents about this. They lived in the same town as us. And, um, and they were still with the mission. They stayed, they have stayed with the mission right up until my father-in-law passed away. They, they were definitely what you'd call a career missionary. Hmm. And I knew that if anything had come out that it would affect their reputation. They were well known across Canada in the mission. He used to be a director with the mission. And so and sure enough, uh, I knew I mean, I knew that they weren't going to take the news well. And um, sure enough, my mother-in-law said, you can't tell anybody at all. Mm. You can't you can't tell anybody about what happened. So for two years, I kept it a secret, didn't tell anybody. And by the end of that two years, I, with a, with some other cracks in the, cracks in the in the armor related to my own parents, which I ended up being estranged from. Then, yeah, I left the marriage and left religion within a year of each other. Yeah, that's it's an interesting look into mental health consequences of that those kinds of beliefs, where you're not allowed to fail. No. Um, you're not allowed to talk to anyone else about your pain. That's just, that's just so terrible. So when you started to move away from religion, you know, it's one thing to realize you don't believe in a deity or in a theological doctrine. The wake-up call of what religion teaches about women, did that come at the same time? Was it a mix? Did those ideas come later? I mean, obviously, you were in a system where your husband was doing stuff and you had to just shut up about it. Um, but where did the the realization about what religion does to women 
come into your perspective? Um, I don't think I really grasped how religion is so harmful to women. I don't think I really grasped that when I was leaving religion, when I was even leaving my own marriage. I was It was a desperate way to survive myself. I, I just could not live under the same roof as somebody who had cheated on me. And I knew it was going to happen again because he hadn't changed. Right. Three The three months of counseling we did with the pastor, you know, did not, he never broke during that whole time in terms of really seeing a change in him. So I, I knew I was just going to get cheated on again. And it was, inc- it was so devastating to be cheated on when I had put you know, 110% into the marriage and into our three kids. And, and we were married for life. I I never, um, I never questioned that I wouldn't be married to him for the rest of my life. My, my parents' marriage was never good. Um, It was incredibly lopsided because they couldn't ever show their emotions for so long. And then when they did start showing emotions, there was so much bitterness between them, but my mom never wanted to divorce him. They finally divorced, um, I think it was three years ago. Oh, wow. After, after 47 years of marriage. But um, yeah, so I just, I saw myself being like them and I just thought, I can't do this. I can't be betrayed again. I can't go through that. And my kids were, you know, getting on in age and my, my daughters, I just didn't want this being the example that they had for themselves. So but it, it wasn't related to feminism and finding my rights. It was it was a survival technique. I mean, even feminism is still a new term for me to even understand what that means. In the last year, I've just started to capture that because mm-hmm. feminism is so so like humanism in essence is completely con um, opposite to Christianity. Humanism says we're all equal at birth. You know, there's no difference between any gender any race of people, we're all the same. That's to me, that's humanism. Mm-hmm. Feminism says men and equal men and women are equal. There is no difference between roles um, in the genders. And so those are so opposite to what Christianity is and the root of evangelical Christianity, especially that mm-hmm. says women are lower than men and children are less important than parents. Um, so, and you're born, born with sin at birth. It's only, I think in the last few years that I'm starting to understand what agnosticism is and humanism is and secularism is. There was about four years after I left the church that I, I couldn't, I couldn't even drive by a church without getting panic attacks. I couldn't go in a church. I couldn't, I didn't want to even open a book like someone would give me a book. I probably it was about deconversion, but anything that related to God or the Bible, I was so afraid that I would get sucked back in and I just wanted nothing to do with it. So I definitely wasn't learning about feminism in that time. So that was about a four year period. And then, and then I started uh, finding podcasts and started, you know, that just sort of opened, opened up the, my mind to more, you know, to thinking more deeply about certain things. And then, then it was, I felt more free to Mm -hmm. say, okay, I can drive by a church. I can't, I did the last time I was in a church was uh, four years ago when my current father-in-law passed away and I didn't have a panic attack going to that funeral, but um, I couldn't have done that before, you know, the previous four years. So it's a healing process, (laughs) you know, to get over that. When you were still married to your first husband and it was breaking up, you know, when you decided to leave, 
were you still kind of hoping that God would help you or had you abandoned that whole line of thinking? I went to the church uh, right up until August of 2008. I remember being in a Sunday school class and them talking about LGBT community and they were saying disparaging things. And for some reason that really like triggered me and I was not happy with how judgmental I got I was being, and I realized my son, you know, and seeing these elders who were, who were running the church, because it was, of course, all run by men mm. in the Baptist church that we were part of. I just thought, I don't want my son to be this 50 or 60 year old man who's so bitter and hateful to everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's the example, you know, for them, for my son in the church. So I, I thought it was the church's problem. We got to go to a different church. So we started church hopping um, and going to denominations. And I, I didn't grow up specifically Baptist. So I thought, okay, the Baptist is too strict. Let's go to some other churches. And that went on for about three months. And then we just, all of our family, including my husband at the time, stopped going to church. And I, I keep thinking back, if I hadn't ended the marriage, he might actually not Christian today. I just Hmm. thought of that this week because he had completely stopped going to church. He was also thinking, oh yeah, we can be, you can be a Christian outside of church. We we don't need that structure. And, and we, you know, going towards becoming a non-Christian, you know, it was sort of like slowly um, inching your way out of it, which is what we were doing because it's really hard to stay a Christian and stay a fundamentalist Christian if you don't have that every single Sunday morning drilled into your head and you don't mm-hmm. have that that community of people and people were already starting to back away from us because we weren't being traditionally oh. you know being traditional and going to church and that church was so so structured in that you've got to go every Sunday morning and so I think you know if we had kept going in that direction he we might have just become really really moderate Christians and eventually just left the faith mm-hmm. but but, you know, the marriage ended. And so it was sort of, so I, I think uh, it was that summer when I found out that my mom had not told my brother that we had been molested by my dad when I was growing up. And when I found that out and told my brother about that, he was so, so upset with my parents. Oh, yeah. Um, that And so, I've, and I had already had not a very good relationship with my brother over those years because he wasn't a Christian for the last, for the all basically when he was an adult onwards and we weren't really allowed to hang out with people who weren't Christians. So, so you weren't allowed to hang out with your own brother. No, because they might influence you negatively. They might, you know, have, um, they might bring doubts into your life. That's, it's very, Mm -hmm. very segregated. (laughs) It's very fearful. It sounds very fearful. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, uh, you don't trust yourself. You're not allowed to trust yourself because you just might fall and you just might fall into sin. But anyways, when he found out that uh, my mom had kept all of this this information from him, he he really um, got on my side and realized, you know, this is not a healthy, healthy relationship. This is not a healthy family. And my mom stuck with my dad and believed that that, you know, there was a she had a vision for the marriage and somehow they were going to make it work. And she turned her back on my brother and I. And so that was the turning point for me because I thought, okay, my mom is the most influential Christian in my life. From the day I was born until I was 15, there was maybe three weeks that I had not been with my mom every single day because she didn't send me to kindergarten or preschool or grade one. 
Right. They held back your education, right? Because they didn't think it was as important as your brother's. So to find out at the age of 39 that she was taking my dad's side in this situation and she was, you know, not going to stand up for her children, then that was the turning point, the the last straw when it was around November, uh, just before I turned 40, um, when I realized I don't want to have anything to do with a God because she was such a, such a strong Christian. So, you know, everything she does, God must, you know, love her for that because, you know, she's so dedicated that God must also agree with this. And I don't want anything to do with a God that agrees with a parent turning their back on their kids. So that was the last straw for me. Yeah. A month before I turned 40. Wow. Did you know, did you know yourself that you had been molested or had you suppressed that? No, I was a year and a half old and my brother was four at the time and my mom witnessed it happening. Oh God. And my dad um, was voyeuristic about it and didn't uh, feel shame. And she should have gone to the police. Um, right. And she didn't. And suppressed. She, she says that she suppressed the memory till I was 22. So she told me when I was 22, at that point, I was really mad at my parents, but I was told, you know, in the Bible, you've got to obey your parents. You've got to forgive everybody. So I basically told, told my dad, I wasn't mad at her. That's the thing. I never was mad at her. And I should have been to realize, you know, why Mm -hmm. didn't you stand up for me way back then? I only got mad at her when I was 39. So I was mad at my dad for what happened. He denied it. Um, he said we were picking on him and I said, okay, well, the only reason I'm going to stay friends with you or communicate with you is because God told me to, because I'm, I'm a Christian. So, you know, between the ages of 22 and 39, that's really my, my interaction with my dad was okay. And I, I was always afraid to have my kids around my dad. We weren't around them a lot because we were in Brazil so much. So, but there was you know, never a time that I trusted my dad to be around them. And he got so upset because he would say, oh, you call me a pedophile. And, you know, and he would badmouth me to my mom and my mom would try to be the mediator. And um, it was it was pretty bad for all those years. Your whole support system was gone. You said that 95 percent of your friends, once your beliefs started to change, uh, you no longer had this support system. So what sustained you during that time? So I've, I've just, I've lost all the community. The only community I have now is, you know, my immediate family, my husband, my kids, um, and the online community, which has been just a radical change for me to find people that are like-minded, find people who have been, been through a lot of difficult situations and come out the other side and you know the podcast guests that I have on which are so encouraging you know to hear their stories and hear how they're they're coping with their Mm -hmm. situation so it's been hard and it still is hard I'm not over it I haven't I haven't found a haven't found a, a niche yet that really makes me feel like that I had what I had back when I was part of the church, but I might never find that again. I mean, it was one of these things that builds and builds. You have friends when you are in school and then you add to that friends list by, you know, we were part of many, many different churches and we just kept adding friends, hundreds and hundreds more friends. So, you know, now I just, I'm starting from scratch and adding, you know, one friend here and another friend there. And and they're all, most of them live in the straight States 
Um, and I don't know if I'll ever see them any, any of them in person. A few people I'm starting to Skype with, which is great. You know, that's like the next best thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's been really, really hard. And there's many days when I just wish I could go back. Sorry, this is hard. Oh, I'm sorry. You can take your time. Yeah. There's many days I, I sometimes just want to tell people don't, don't open that can of worms. You stay in your church. Don't doubt because you're going to, you know, you're going to keep your, um, keep your family you can keep your friends. And I miss that a lot because I had, you know, up until I was uh, 38 or 39, I, I prided myself in having no enemies, including my dad. I, you know, I was like, nope, there's nobody I couldn't talk to if they came to my door. I have no enemies. I just have hundreds and hundreds of friends and acquaintances. And so I started getting enemies and, um, that was really hard. Um, you know, to have people who never wanted to see me again, who'd write hate mail to me. Um, I lost all of all, but one pretty much of my, um, in-laws and he, my husband was from a family of five with 19 grandkids and cousins. And only one person out of that whole group has ever tried to contact me. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I lost a lot. And I just want to say how courageous that is, though. I mean, it's probably not very helpful, but the fact that you went with what you knew was true, and, you know, if people can't accept you and love you for that, you know, that's that really is their problem. I'm sure it's painful. Of course, it's painful. You know, betrayal yeah. is, is such a painful thing. And it takes a long time to heal. Your husband, Ian, though, sounds like he has been an incredible support, right? Yes, he's fantastic. I mean, that was just a chance meeting at our um, high school, 20 year high school reunion. I just happened to meet him. And at that point, I was still a Christian. And he was he was still a Christian and he was um, coming out of his 17 year marriage. He was separated. And, um, and, you know, I didn't have really any male friends all the, all those years that were other than, you know, a family friend, but I was never really, I never really had sat down and had, you know, more than a five or 10 minute conversation with anybody else, any men with half the population. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I didn't interact with him after that for a whole year until at that point I was starting to leave the church enough to, that I felt like, what, why haven't I talked to men? I'm sure I can learn something from them and I can get some more friendships. So I friended him on Facebook and we started chatting and I was still married and I was still committed to my marriage, but I, I just felt like, Oh, he, he's a brother in Christ, you know, and I can talk to him. And he was, he was from a Christian reform background, which didn't have those rules. You know, he didn't feel like he couldn't talk to women and he, he wasn't a flirt. So we just, we talked about theology and all kinds of things. And then after my marriage ended, he said he had feelings for me. And then we connected up, we lived together for three years. And then now we've been married for four years. So he's, yeah, he's been an incredible um mm -hmm influence on my life because he didn't come from that fundamentalist background that said men are above women. So he never treated me inferior. You know, I didn't go from one a misogynist to another misogynist. He's, you know, very, very far away from ever being a misogynist. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's been 
healing for me. Um, and I definitely would not be where I am today without him. I just only knew misogynists. You know, most of the church is filled with misogynists. I hate to say that, but there's misogynist women and misogynist men because mm -hmm. the religion encourages that, teaches that. And um, so that's, you know, I think there was probably some other women's husbands that I interacted with that, you know, I would see them at the church events or potlucks and I would think yeah that man seems like a nice person but I don't know they might have just looked that way but probably some of them were not misogynist some of them were like Ian you know who were just good Christians um who weren't outwardly you know doing bad things but they were also not hurting their wife at home is Ian an atheist he has become an atheist through I I of course did not plan on influencing him because he's very he is very opinionated he knows what he thinks and he, he is incredibly smart he has a master's degree in um, neuropsychology oh, cool. um, so I learned a lot from him so I did not plan on him losing his faith mm -hmm. but it was just a gradual thing where I would I listen to podcasts and he would listen to podcasts and then you know we would we would tell each other what we learned. And so I think it was a gradual thing where he just started to question his faith more. And there was some things about the religion that he didn't like, such as um, that they didn't, you know, answer a lot of the theological questions when they were brought up, they would just have pat answers. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it's, it's a, a mystery. mystery. You know, God, God will provide it. You know, it's beyond our understanding and he didn't like those answers. So he likes to, he's a very logical person and he likes to find out answers with the two of you since you had and especially you since you had this very very restrictive upbringing and belief system that really kind of kept blinkers on once you took the blinkers off were there certain things that you really enjoyed doing or that you really wanted to explore i mean i'm I, i've talked to other people who were evangelicals and then they be they realized that they were atheists over a long period of time and they really got turned on by geology and mm -hmm. they went and they watched all these movies that they weren't <laughs> allowed to watch you know mm -hmm. <laughs> so is there anything like that that was a response it was like let's go do this thing well you know i think when i first left the religion i I cautioned myself or I, I kept the reins in, in terms of when we were part of the religion, if somebody would leave the religion, we just assumed they'd go off the deep end. They'd go and have affairs. They'd leave their marriage. They'd get tattoos. They would become an alcoholic. <laughs> oh yeah. Tattoos were a sin back then, you know, that they would do all these sinful things and, and that's, you know, they were, you know, the heathen because they didn't have God in their life. So I think at the beginning, I might have subconsciously not wanted to do any of those things because I was still still wanting to keep an image maybe that, you know, I'm still a good person. And I was mm -hmm. always surprised that people would stop talking to me. And I, and I would think, I, I haven't gotten any tattoos. I haven't, I'm not ri riding a Harley Davidson. I'm still a good person. <laughs> <laughs> All these things that... Oh, so I think I, I should have jumped in maybe more with, you know, with both feet. Um, but I, I was just in limbo land for, you know, those four years. And then my kids, as they've gone through high school and now they're the two older ones are in, um, their early twenties and they, they did drugs a bit. They would, you know, get drunk at parties and they've, they tried the, all the mysticism and the tarot cards and the, 
voodoo stuff and you know they've sort of tried everything and they've all come out the other side as atheists now and found their you know moderate way to live again and i would so i watched them go through a lot of that and it just scared me because i would see them get drunk and throw up everywhere and i thought i don't want to get drunk because i'm still to this day i still have not you know gotten drunk and i've only smoked one cigarette and i've i tried um marijuana the other uh, two Christmases ago, and I just coughed, and it wasn't didn't impact me at all. And you have to do I'm it scared. at least twice. I know I'm scared to try <laughs> try mushrooms. People keep saying you got to try mushrooms. I, so I'm scared at this point. I think I'm, you know, all those years of being told this is evil, this is bad, this yeah. is sinful. You'll go to hell if you do these things. It's still nagging at me, yeah. and so I've sort of hit a bit of a wall right now where I can't push myself past. A, past certain things and also health wise you know right I get heart palpitations if I have too much alcohol and so well you don't have I don't to know do, I, you don't have to do I know I don't have to try those things to yeah. be a fun person what I am enjoying is seeing how I'm stretching my brain so we grew up you know not having any tv because tv is bad and not allowed to read um, novels because that's a waste of time so I'm 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 really enjoying now seeing how my brain is stretched um, intellectually and or socially in in all of those things that I was not allowed to do before and watch movies that have sex and to not be triggered by that, whereas I would have been triggered by it three years or five years ago. Mm-hmm. or and, and seven years ago, I would have never even watched that. So to watch R-rated movies and... Um, and then just not having the shame and guilt. I don't care if I, you know, go through the rest of my life and I'm still quite conservative in my actions, but just to not have that shame and guilt constantly over my head and the fear of death mm-hmm. um, is is very, it, it's still worth it. It's still worth leaving and being lonely outside of religion. To, I would never go back to that. So it's, it's, it's weird. Um, I, I would wish that anybody would never have to wait till they're 40 before they would leave the religion. I think that that's part of my, a lot of the problems I have is that I stayed so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if people can leave even 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, just have so much less brainwashing to have to get rid of or, um, you know, re- retrain mm-hmm. your brain. You know, a lot of people, I'm sure this is a familiar refrain to you, a lot of people think, well, if you don't have religion, then what about your moral structure? Where do you get your morals yeah. from or your ethics? How would how would you answer people? Um, that's, you know, I don't think you, in the church, you ever think through and say, yeah, my morals are because I, you know, believe the Bible and that God you know, infuses, infuses those morals into my life through the scripture. You say those words, but you don't really understand what your morals are. They're, they're outwardly enforced. They're, they're completely external structure that you work around and that you follow based on uh, reward and punishment. And so you're rewarded in heaven if you follow what the Bible says and you're punished in hell if you don't. So morals to us being in the church, we're so external. Um, you know, don't get that tattoo. Don't swear. Don't gossip. Mm. Don't be a glutton. Don't have affairs. You know, don't covet your neighbor's possessions. And they weren't, they weren't really those internal morals that to me, I'm starting to realize are, are more the basis of the humanism and the feminism Mm -hmm. to say that people matter 
every person matters, not just the adult men. They're, they matter more than the adult woman, and the adult women matter more than the children. This hierarchy, which actually is incredibly immoral to think of it that way, but we would have not seen it as immoral part of the church. So in some ways, I was less moral when I was religious, hmm. because if you think of society as a whole, and if you think of those, um, a child realizing that they mean less than their parents, and that that's okay to have this always inferiority complex and that that's actually supposed to be there because God said it's, you know, it's that way. What kind of morals are the, are the, is that child growing up with? It's incredibly twisted. And mm -hmm. so I saw a um, quote, it would be so much better if people realized the importance of children instead of always looking at the fetus. And it's that same idea yeah. where the morals of the church is so, it's so twisted and, and skewed that pro you know pro life and the fetus is more important than the actual child that's born and we better so so it's it's like well why why is that you know mm -hmm. where where did that come from and everything has to have a scriptural backing so i do feel i'm a, in some ways a more moral person now than i was before based on humanism and feminism mm -hmm. um but i'm still learning in some ways i'm i'm just a teenager i'm just a young adult in knowing what this is about in some ways it's it's that arrested development <laughs> mm -hmm. in i don't really know what are true good morals until i actually have to analyze them and think them through for myself and say what what do i believe instead of having the pastor tell them to you and the bible tell them to you and your parents tell them to you and you just take it hook line and sinker and you don't question it i make a lot of mistakes lately in how to how to navigate dealing with people and not just this black and white terminology and you know based on their actions but understanding where what's the root of this so i have a lot to learn um it's... well we're all making those mistakes <laughs> and that's the thing it's yeah. just you know if you don't have something to cover it up with like your dad did. Now on the Women Beyond Belief podcast, you've talked to a lot of women from different backgrounds and, and some men as well. Um, but with the women, are there commonalities that you find in talking with them about their religious experiences and why they left? The, the Why they left is quite different. Um, the, the actual religious experience, it's incredible how many of them I ha we have a lot in common. It's scary to think that there was other people like myself who went through all that crap. Uh, it's just, it's so sad, you know, to, to feel that, you know, oh shit, you went through all that stuff too. Oh, yeah, yeah. and we, you know, can uh, cry on each other's shoulders. But the reason for leaving is quite different. And it, I, I'm always intrigued by everyone's story because everyone has, you know, so much to say. And yeah, there's, lots and lots of different reasons why people leave it can sometimes be related to people for me it was mostly it was it wasn't reading my bible whereas some people say you read your bible and you'll become an atheist that was not true for me at all mm -hmm. um it was people who hurt me it was people who claimed to be christians that i thought no i don't want to have anything to do with what these christians are like if christians claim to be following god then i don't want to have anything to do with that god you know right. so mm -hmm. that's you know, there are were a few like that. There are some people who, you know, it was reading their Bible 
or it was related to prayer. There definitely there was two specific ladies that um, indicated that they would test. They tested God and they would say, "Okay, I'm going to pray about this and see if He answers that prayer." You know, and then if He's not answering that prayer, then that was one reason. You know, to to make them leave their faith. So that's hmm. it's interesting how there's a quite a big variety of reasons why people leave the faith. Speaking about prayers, now you said that your husband Ian had been diagnosed with cancer. How's he doing? Um, he's doing okay right now. He had six months of chemo and he seemed to be really improving within the first three or four months. And then I, apparently this is actually quite common by the sixth month, he, you can actually have a downward turn. And so he, his white blood cell count is too low for them to do the next antibiotic treatment. So they do chemo for six months and then two years of antibiotic treatments. And he just got approved to get the funding for this really expensive treatment. So that's been, oh, that's good. That's, so he's had some strange health situations. That was a new thing that we hadn't experienced. It's, I mean, overall, his he's bounced back amazingly compared to a lot of people who go through, mm-hmm. you know, chemo. Well, and also you're in Canada, so you have medical care. Yes, yes. I, I cannot <laughs> believe what you guys go through down there. I mean, he, right now, and with the chemo treatment, we would have been bankrupt for sure if we were mm-hmm. in the state, so... Did you ever, you know, a lot of people make bargains with God when they come up against a serious medical condition. Is that something that ever occurred to you? I mean, did you ever wonder, gee, maybe I should pray or or were you just so far from that at that point that it didn't it didn't crop up? Um, it's not really this. It's not really thinking, oh, you know, I, if God was real, you know, then I would pray for me. It's just a default where, you know, it's not as much a default now. It's been seven years since, you know, the last time I prayed. And so it's just the very first thing that sometimes come out of my mouth that will, I'll say, Uh Jesus, please heal him or, you know, just help him feel better or something. And I'll catch myself doing that. And I just sort of chuckle and think, yeah, that's just because it's, you know, it was so ingrained in my in my evangelical life, because we were, we were the kind of Christians that prayed all the time. You know, we didn't just pray at meals or something, you know, we prayed all the time and you were supposed to be praying in your head and, and out loud and just constantly praying sort of. So that's just sort of a default, but there hasn't been a time. And that's been interesting. I guess I'm far enough away from the religion that it, I haven't wanted to go back and say, okay, now I'm going to come back to God because there's this health crisis and, and I'm sure that, you know, he'll fix it if, if I come back and repent. That mm. I haven't felt that. What I have had to deal with, which is facing death, which I had never had to face before. I, I was fortunate in some ways um, that I haven't had to deal with having anybody close to me die. So I, I'm lucky to have avoided that, whereas other people... You know, they have those crises that they really totally come up on, um, surprise them. Having Ian have cancer was a surprise. And because it was serious enough that it's cancer and he's 48 years old and what on earth is going on? Why is this happening? I faced a depression that I hadn't faced before in terms of realizing Mm -hmm. that he could die and I'm going to be a widow at a young age. And... That was that was really hard. That's actually when I joined the clergy project because I was so depressed and felt like I needed to reach out. Um, so yeah, I reached out to a secular community. I didn't reach out to God at that point. Mm-hmm. If it makes any difference 
I'm certainly sending my, you know, when people say, oh, we're sending our thoughts and prayers, it's like, <laughs> it's so, so hackneyed. Yeah. But I'm thinking of Ian and I, I wish you both the best Thank because you. uh, you're, you're a brave woman, Wendy, to face, to face these issues yourself and then to want to help other people to understand it as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful impulse that comes from a strong person. Mm -hmm. And I think the more of us who speak out, I, I mean, I'm just like my guests. I, there's nothing special about me. I'm just another woman who's left religion. And the more of us who can speak out and have this ability to feel validated because we know we're not alone, uh, you know, the world's mm -hmm. going to be a better place. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, take care, Maria. Thanks to Wendy Morrisman, and thank you for listening. Check the show notes for links to Wendy's podcast, Women Beyond Belief, and for other stuff we talk about. You can subscribe to The Big Chew Podcast by going to www.thebigchewpodcast.com. How easy is that? Thanks again. Bye for now.